A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners in the whole world. Today, we're going to do episode 13. Uh, ben and I are going to have a bit of an informal chat or discussion on chapters one and two of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, first Corinthians. So we're going to do first Corinthians chapters one and two, and we're just going to have a free flow session, theologically speaking, and we'll just see where the spirit leads in conjunction with the many books we've read and our studies and whatever we have flowing in our minds as we read the text. So who knows where this is going to lead? We'll find out soon enough. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good, thanks. Awesome. So, okay, we're reading 1 Corinthians. You ready? Yeah, let me say something first. Uh, 1 Corinthians is kind of one of my favorites uh, in the New Testament. Um, one of the reasons for that is just that I, I just invested some time in it years ago. Um, Oh, it's got to have been almost like seven or eight years ago. I heard some, I heard some advice because everybody has New Year's Eve Bible reading plans and the best way to do it. And somebody had an odd suggestion and they said, take a book of the Bible and just read it. I forget. It was a big number. It was something like read it 20 times, literally. That's all you do. And, and it seems kind of ridiculous, but uh, that's what I did. And I did that with first Corinthians. I've never done that with another book as far as I know. And, and what it did is it gave me sort of a sense of the landscape of the whole book from front to back. Um, something that said in one chapter, I know that something similar is going to be said in another chapter. And, and it all kind of formed a, a, a sort of an organic uh, in, integrated whole in my mind, at least for a little while. And so now I actually haven't read it for quite some time, but I still feel like this book is an old friend hmm. just because of that experience. Uh, and, uh, and this was a good one to choose for that, I think, too. Yeah, I love First and Second Corinthians. To me, these these two together are the Apostle Paul's best epistles, in my opinion. I think he he brings all of the theology from Galatians and Romans, and he puts it to work with the many, many, many problems that the Corinthians faced. <laughs> so I'm excited to read and and see what we come up with together. Yeah, and also as you mentioned to me before, um, I mean this is a podcast about experiential theology, or at least any theology that I'm interested in these days, um, I'm interested in it with an experiential foundation, uh, as opposed to various other alternative foundations that you could have, whether they be traditional or biblicist or, or rationalist or, or whatever. So hopefully we can kind of bring that out, because I think that First Corinthians in particular, uh, we get a real sense of Paul's experience, Paul's own experience of Christ crucified and what it means to him. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's jump in. Uh, I'll read the salutation or the greeting section, and then we'll pause briefly, make maybe make a few comments, and we'll make our way through chapters one and two. Ready? Ready. All right, here we go. From Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, 
with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Well, this is uh, this is one of my favorite openers of Paul's uh, letters. And the reason is, for me, uh, verses, verse 2, the second half of verse 2, it kind of became deeply significant to me years ago when I was looking at this book. And here's why. Uh, one of the things that I've been concerned about growing up as a Protestant is that there are lots of Protestant churches, and none of them seem to agree. We have a real sense of a fractured church if you're a Protestant. If you're mm. Catholic, you have some comfort in this global church that you belong to. Mm-hmm. and you have that sense of unity even though there's a lot of diversity still you still have that sense of unity same with eastern orthodox and um but protestants and i would say pentecostals because i think pentecostalism is like the fourth great division of the church uh, we don't have that kind of unity and we're constantly maybe feeling a little bit insecure about what's wrong with that <laughs> what's going on i mean we're going to see that this chapter is about divisions in the church for goodness sakes but um but anyway, what does Paul say? He addresses his, uh, his audience, people in Corinth. He says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And this is the part that really I find remarkable. He says, with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So a couple of things there. Uh, for me, I've really taken this to be the definition of Christian unity. Uh, I consider anyone who calls on the name of the Lord with whom I share a Lord, with whom we can say their Lord and ours, I consider them to be a fellow, um, a fellow believer or a fellow Christian or a fellow member of the body of Christ. And it's really as simple as that. Great. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times I think uh, people look back to the early church and uh, they try to paint this really rosy picture of how wonderful and unified it was. But I mean, when you really study church history, you see that it was not it was not as unified as we think it was. No, you even see that in in Paul's letters. But yes, I mean, definitely we have a lot of uh, issues in Protestant churches with disunity and constant schisms and division. And this, this verse really calls us to the spiritual reality behind the institutional church. That yes. even beyond that, be, behind that, uh, we are united in our faith in Christ. And if we call on him, then he is our common Lord. And I think that is, that is awesome. That's it. Like it's this common Lord that becomes the unifier. And this, this is the most clear place in the New Testament where that is said in like half a sentence, I think. Uh, I'd be interested to, if anyone could find a better place, but I, I think this is the best spot I've been looking for a while. Yeah, yeah. and this, this does, this, this solves a lot of problems. Like, what if somebody has a different theology than me? I don't know, do we both call upon the name of the Lord? Like. Um, what if they have a different Christology than me? 
Does that mean it's a different Lord? No, Christology is just a description of the one you're calling upon. <laughs> just because we describe that one differently doesn't mean we don't have the same Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, like, there's, there's just, it just makes up for so much. Um, but it mm -hmm. also like does away with all the superficial sources of unity. Like, what if we belong to the same social class? Well, that doesn't matter. Like, that doesn't have to do with having a common Lord. Uh, what if we belong to the same local congregation? Well, that doesn't matter either. That doesn't really have, that's no guarantee of calling upon the same Lord either. <laughs> uh, what if we both call ourselves Christians? Like, I think that the easiest definition at a practical level for who is a fellow Christian is who self-identifies as a Christian. Uh, that's probably the most conflict-free way to, to proceed. But I, I, um, I will reject uh, the idea that I share a common Lord with many of the hateful forms of Christianity that are out the work that are out at work in the world. Their Lord is Satan, not the risen uh, Jesus Christ, even yeah. though they spell it J E S U S. So it it's, we're talking about who or what are we actually worshiping at a practical level of our lives at a practical level of what do we depend upon to save us from, uh, to, from the from the things that ail us in this world and uh and the descriptions can be different what we need is that actual common lord to have a unify a unification between fellow believers mm -hmm. yes uh i've read a few books by hans kung uh swiss roman catholic theologian and yeah he has uh a couple of books on the unity of the church and he says just what we said much more eloquently and you know writing like 800 pages about it but we got the gist of it so we're we're in good uh we're in a good position i think all right i'll, I'll read the next section the thanksgiving it says verse four i always thank my god for you because of the grace of god that was given to you in christ jesus for you were made rich in every way in him in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge just as the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, uh, so this is a Thanksgiving section. That's what the translators have labeled the section. <laughs> but what, what occurs to me as you just read it was that we're kind of getting a picture of the world, that, the theological world that Paul lives in, the things that he's expecting, the things that he's thankful for, the things that he finds significant. And, uh, and it kind of puts his, it sort of gives us a glimpse into the world from where he stands, uh, what he values. And what he's concerned about. So if I include verse three previously, it says, I'm um, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians will say that the doctrine of the Trinity is the most important thing for them. And they want to start there. Now, I'm not sure where this comes from. It could come from the fact that it's one of only two sort of ecumenical councils that we have that, that pins us down. 
Um, we don't have an ecumenical council on the atonement, the theory of the atonement, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, it could be the influence of Karl Barth and him putting the Trinity first after Schleiermacher put the Trinity last. Uh, I'm not sure, but I've certainly had some of the pastors, or one of the pastors at least, that I grew up with sort of say to me, if you want to find a good church, make sure that they have the Trinity right. And I just think that's terrible advice. Uh, and, and here's kind of why. So in Paul's world, mm -hmm. who is the God that Paul worships? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's mm -hmm. it. He worships the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God he's worshiping. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're one and the same. And, um, and the key thing for Paul is that the only way for him to please the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to recognize that this is the God of Jesus, that the God that Paul has been worshiping all his life, now he's worshiping God in a way that pleases this God <laughs> through the son that's been given to us. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Like we're, we're, we're in business even before we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. So I, I, I put that I don't think that deserves to be chapter one of our theology. I think that should be a little bit down the road, if anything. Um, and when you look at it that way, it's all about the faithfulness of God. What has God done? Uh, God's asking us to approach God through Jesus. God has given us gifts through Jesus. Um, and then, and and so on, yeah. So I, I'll, leave, I'll let you speak about this now. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to say something else afterwards, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. Well, I always love Paul's introductions in the letters. Like, for example, the one with the Galatians, you read the introduction and you know that he's really mad at them. <laughs> but here, I mean, he knows that the Corinthians have all kinds of issues, but he still gives thanks for them. And very strategically, the things that he's thankful for are the very things that they need help with, that they need <laughs> correction in. So even though... Uh, the Corinthians thought that they were so sophisticated in their wisdom and that they had the gift of tongues and spiritual gifts. They, they thought they were so abundantly rich in gifts and eloquence and wisdom. Uh, Paul has a lot to say about that. We're probably not going to get to it, but he's nevertheless grateful. He's grateful that uh, a bunch of people in Corinth one of the cities at that time known for being, uh, shall we say, low on ethics and just kind of famous. Corinth, stays in Corinth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the least likely places, right, for people to uh, come to a faith that has such a such a strong ethical emphasis like Christianity, which at the time wasn't Christianity, but yeah, he is thankful that these pagans, these uh, unbelievers, these Gentiles have come to believe in Jesus Christ and are now worshiping God. And they're worshiping him exclusively. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Paul really sees uh, eschatological promises from the prophets being fulfilled through his ministry. And uh, he is thankful for what he is seeing the Holy Spirit do through his ministry. It's amazing.
Yes. Uh, talks about the being made rich in every way, in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge. Um, talks about the testimony of Christ having been confirmed in you, so you do not lack any spiritual gift. So, so the for for the Corinthians, the Christian faith, which we might describe it that way in retrospect. It's uh, not just a doctrine. It's not just a um, a philosophy. It's not just a worldview. It's this abundance of spiritual power, mm -hmm. and and, uh, and and maybe even knowledge, or they feel like they have knowledge. And uh, so, it's, anyway, it's got a very Pentecostal feel to it. Honestly, the Corinthian church, if you want to put it that way, and it's and Paul's sort of trying to address like how do you how do you act. Um, according to the character of the spirit of Jesus. Yeah, without getting distracted by, by the power that's present or, or how do you, maybe misconstruing that power. Actually, I think that's a better way to put it. So spiritual gifts can be. Um, so here's my, here's a theory I have, a small theory I have. I think that in North America, so Canada, the United States, I'm guessing, um, we we have a secular society to some extent, and part of that is that we have um, a sort of a nat an assumption of naturalism. So religious people do believe in God, uh, but but for the most part, not many more people are expecting any miracles or any actual, tangible, measurable intervention of the spirit. Of course, we do pray for a parking spot at the mall. I know, but like, but let's get real. Like, there's <laughs> there's a sense that. People, many people are not expecting um, the facade of, an, of a natural world to ever be broken within their, within their eyesight. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe the Corinthians felt that way, maybe not. I don't actually, I kind of doubt it given their context, but, but when something spiritual happens, when you see something that sort of challenges your assumption of, of naturalism, it's easy to be impressed. And that, but I think that what this what this letter is largely about is helping the Corinthians to not be so easily impressed to measure everything against the character of mm -hmm. Jesus, which is manifest mm -hmm. in Christ crucified and him preaching Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. And and this is my main criticism, like of of Pentecostal churches. I I I've often worshipped in Pentecostal churches, but but I feel like the place where they are most likely to have trouble is. Um, is that they're really interested in in finding a way to to live as if naturalism was false, but really that's not the same thing as living as if Christ has been crucified. They're very different things, <laughs> and they can kind of both be true. Mm -hmm. But but just because you understood one doesn't mean you understood the other. So yeah, and you also right. mentioned um, Paul has eschatological promises. Uh, in mind here. And I think this is pretty interesting because he talks about, yeah, you don't lack any spiritual gifts. Okay. As you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, like, what do you mean wait for it? I thought it already happened. No, no, no. He's talking about this sort of return of Christ, the mm -hmm. delayed eschaton. He talks about God strengthening you to the end so that you'd mm -hmm. be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's living in light of a last day, an imminent last day. And the, the gifts that are present are sort of a foretaste of that last day when God is going to be more clearly manifest. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what do we exactly. make of that now? That's another question. Yeah. 
Right, yes, that's definitely another question. Okay, well, let's move forward. Next section, divisions in the church. Uh, I'll read it. You can read the next section. I urge you, <laughs> brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree, to agree together, to end your divisions, and to be united by the same mind and purpose. For members of Chloe's household have made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you, in fact, baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Otherwise, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with clever speech, so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. Okay, so, uh, I mean, you, you brought this to mind immediately. You were talking about divisions in the church. I mean, here, we're not talking about denominations, but I think the principle still applies. Uh, we have to remember that the early days of the church or the churches, they didn't have buildings. Largely, they were meeting in households. And I would imagine that in the city of Corinth, there were maybe uh, different households in which the church, the Christians met. So it's possible that in different uh, locations within Corinth, uh, people had strong preferences for one leader versus another or a person a person's theology versus another so here the main characters are paul apollos cephas which is the apostle peter and christ and of course uh paul is reminding them that their focus should not be on human leaders but on christ himself okay all right what do you say yeah, um, I wonder like if, if this division was at the level was within a group of like 35 people or something. Like seven of them were with Peter, seven of them were for Paul, <laughs> 12 for Apollos. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's interesting. The, the question of authority in the Christian faith is huge. It's, um, it's almost like the number one question and, and a lot of people answer it a lot of people uh, answer it, and and then they just move on. Uh, the I I don't want to beat the same drum too often, but I think that I think that uh, in the evangelical world, at least, it's very easy to say my authority is the Bible. Problem solved. Yeah. In the Catholic world, it's very easy to say my authority is the teaching authority of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, in the Eastern Orthodox, it's very easy to say my authority is, let me guess, um, probably tradition because they, I know the Eastern Orthodox has got the, the deepest sense of continuity or the deepest valuing of continuity all the way back to the beginning, I would yeah. say. They would say the church fathers and the liturgy that they've had for hundreds of years. Yeah. And 
I guess that becomes bigger than any one person. And, and there is something to that, I guess. But yeah, everybody's looking for authority in theology. And so, I don't know, as for me in my house, it's got to be experiential <laughs> because, because uh, we're talking about this one, the, the source of unity is calling upon the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. That is at the very least a moral experience. It's mm -hmm. an experience of saying, I am a person who's committed to cooperation with the spirit of Jesus and to be challenged by the spirit of Jesus yeah. and empowered by that same spirit to meet the, those demands. Um, yeah, and I mean, our situation today, obviously we have so many denominations, but I would say that even the identity within denominations, people are not, they're not strongly tied to their tradition. So for example, let's say that I were Lutheran or something. A Lutheran 70, 80 years ago would think it, would say it's unthinkable that a Lutheran would marry a Presbyterian, for example, because <laughs> they were so committed to their identity, right? But fast forward to today, people are like, well, he's a Christian, she's a Christian. Yeah, we're part of different denominations. I think that people understand, even if they haven't really studied the scriptures, but they just know at a deep level that our divisions are probably a little bit shallow compared to the deeper reality, which is faith in Christ. Regardless of how much they know about the faith, I think people understand that that is the case. And uh, I think it is a good thing that people are not so strongly tied to their denom denominational identities. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I, I think that on my part, it's a bit of a weakness to say for me to um, kind of shirk the decision of choosing a denomination, because really I don't have a denomination that I'm committed to. I've got ones that I've been part of in the past. Um, mostly I was just part of local churches that happened to belong to denominations, but, uh, but so, but so actually I do have some respect for people who say, you know what, I'm going to get down to work. I need people to work with. So I'm going to choose a denomination and it's not, it doesn't become the best denomination. It just becomes their home. Um, this is, this is what it means. I think this is a healthy way to have an attitude towards the country that you live in, for instance doesn't do anyone any good to say my country is the best country on the face of the world. Um, what, what you need to do is just say, well, this is my home. I'm thankful for things. There's other things that bother me, but this is the place where I'm going to try to make things better. And, and so, so I think that's a healthy attitude towards, towards denominations, at least. Um, you know. I wanted to talk about the last verse of this section here, though. Uh, Paul says, here, let me, let me know what, what word I get wrong in this, okay? So, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with clever tweets, so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you catch it? <laughs> yeah. So, the, the, this is fascinating. All right. Paul is, Paul seems to think that if he were to be a really shiny preacher that that would somehow make the cross of Christ useless. That is kind of a remarkable thought. <laughs> mm -hmm. Especially today, like 
what what is the what is the landscape in which Christianity, let's say in Canada in the United States, for instance, is is um, evolving? Well, all of a sudden we all have access to the internet, and television is sort of not the main medium anymore. Like the area of the tele the era of the televangelist is sort of coming to an end. Let's say. Welcome to the era, the democratic era of Christian influencers. <laughs> it is upon us, right? Yeah. Maybe we are guilty of, of trying to become influencers ourselves. <laughs> but, no, we're not. No, okay. <laughs> we only have like two followers on this podcast. So, <laughs> so, so the here, so here we are. I mean, here we are where anybody can tune into anyone connected to the internet and hear what they have to say. And, and for a lot of Christian people in ministry, it becomes about building a brand, um, mm -hmm. building a following, literally. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you do that? With clever speech. That's the only way. Like, you have to say clever things at the right time, or you have to somehow cooperate with the artificial intelligence that uses outrage to mm -hmm. attract our perpetual attention to, to mm -hmm. this sort of marketplace of disinformation that we have. Yeah. It's kind of scary when you think about it that way. So, so uh, yeah, what does it mean to preach the gospel in the era of self-built influencing in cooperation with the algorithms that decide who really becomes the influencer and does that empty the cross and make it useless mm -hmm. good questions and i mean i think there are a lot of similarities between corinth in the first century and our societies that we live in today i mean they struggle with the same things materialism greed many maybe maybe not demons and gods of all kinds but a lot of the same issues. Yeah, uh, but also I, I with agree Paul, with you. Also with Paul, like it, on the one hand, he's sort of saying, I'm not even trying to be a good speaker. On the other hand, he's saying, I'm an apostle, you better listen. So, <laughs> on the, so sometimes he's defending his authority, but sometimes he's de self-deprecating. And I guess maybe what, I guess the next section we're going to read. Um, yeah. Paul's really concerned that people are going to follow him for the wrong reason or dismiss him for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so we got to understand what makes it, what makes the gospel, what it is, what makes a minister of the gospel credible, mm -hmm. what makes a presentation of the gospel legitimate. Uh, this, this is the question that, that is in the next section and, and that carries forward in this book. Yeah. It's a huge question. Probably the most important question right now. Okay, well, why don't you read the, the rest of chapter one, starting with verse 18. Read that whole section until the end, and then we'll tackle it. Okay, to the end of chapter one or chapter two as well? Oh, no, the oh. chapter one, or whatever you see fit to stop, I guess. You could stop okay. at two, five, I suppose. That would be a better yeah, break. Okay, I'll do that. Okay. This is the NET or the net version. So, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believed by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block for Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world th thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his, that in God's presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one boasts, who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God, for I decided to be concerned with nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Okay, yeah, this is, I think, uh, the core of the letter out of which Paul starts to really deal with all of the issues that, that he has to help the Corinthians with. Um, a tremendous, tremendous passage. I like how Paul talks about how his presentation of the gospel, he's preaching not just the Messiah or Christ, but the Messiah crucified which of course will be a stumbling block to everybody, both Jew and Gentile or Greek. Uh, crucifixion was a horrible death that the Roman Empire inflicted upon uh, rebels, people that wanted to uh, maybe overthrow Rome, uh, slaves who tried to run away. It was a very, very shameful death. And I think this is probably one of the most scandalous passages in the New Testament. I really think it is. Uh, it's got to be in the top two or three to think that the word of the cross or the gospel, it's this message about Jesus Christ crucified, the Messiah being crucified, and how Paul says that in that death, he sees the wisdom of God and the power of God. And of course, in the society that the Corinthians 
lived, which is one that praised eloquence, philosophical knowledge, uh, you know, like the Sophia, sophisticated knowledge and culture. A message about a person being crucified, not just killed, but crucified. And then talking about how that displays the power and the wisdom of God. This is, this is very, very, very difficult to imagine how how this message would actually bring uh, people to faith and in, into a relationship with God. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yes, so I want to um, try to clarify something. And I'm not sure what you think about this yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So the word here is foolishness. And, and I think, let me put it this way. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant in my faith to, to believe in mysteries or meditate on contradictions, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people will kind of point you in that direction. This is one of the reasons why I find the doctrine of the Trinity kind of frustrating because I feel like it's the wrong kind of mystery and the wrong kind of contradiction. <laughs> it's the wrong kind of stumbling block. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly how to put this, but uh, what is the what's going on with the foolishness here and the and the sort of like the inversion of wisdom? Uh, what is it that what what's really going on? And I think I think that the answer has more to do with the human will than it does with the human uh, intellect. So I very often people will will say, well, let's just be reasonable, or I'm a reasonable person, or I reasoned from this conclusion to that conclusion, from this premise to that conclusion, or, or whatever. Well, what's really going on under the hood when people are reasoning through something or other? Their will, like they either, they want a certain outcome, uh, or they don't want to face a certain fact or a certain conclusion. And so they use their intelligence and their philosophy and their tools to just make it, to make the, to put their thumb on the scale and get the outcome that they want of their reasoning process. And this is why, this is why partisanship in politics is just always there, right? Often in politics, we, we're just amazed at how opposite parties on the political spectrum cannot really compromise with each other or negotiate or even really communicate on anything. It's because the will is deeper and more powerful than the intellect. What you want in the world, what you want, what you will to do, that actually guides how you think, how you reason, what you're willing to notice, and so on. So all that to say, and I'll, and I'll sort of pause for a second here. Um, I think that's what's going on here is that Christ crucified at the experiential level is um, it's a revelation of the will of God in a way that as we stand in its presence, we fear being destroyed. Just like in, uh, in say, the book of Isaiah, 
Isaiah has this vision where he ends up in the presence of God and he says, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Mm -hmm. I've seen the Lord and he's, a, and he's ready to die because in the, in the um, Hebrew Bible, seeing the Lord is a death sentence. Well, in the current world, <laughs> really seeing Christ crucified for what it means is a death sentence to all of your priorities and plans. And it is a terrifying thing. And it just destroys all of the, all of the artificial reasoning and thinking and, and habits that we had. And, and they all come tumbling down, all the things we've built up to sort of justify ourselves to ourselves and, and others. I think that's what's going on when we talk about the foolishness of God and the revelation of, the, of, the, of Christ crucified. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we can probably agree that in this presentation of the gospel, I mean, can you just imagine the Corinthians hearing this for the first time ever? I mean, they knew many gods. There were many lords, many religions. So they were used to hearing things. They heard philosophy, but now there's this message here. And I think uh, they were probably definitely, I'm sure, they found Paul's message challenging because, I mean, he called uh, believers to exclusive devotion to Jesus Christ with all that that entailed. But I think also, so that's the will that you're talking about, right? Like you have to surrender your will to, uh, to Jesus Christ and to doing his will. And I think there's also an intellectual issue here, however, that again we know that the corinthians wanted to be thought of well as sophisticated knowledgeable they wanted to have that uh they wanted to be seen almost like like the philosophers were esteemed people worth listening to and following and how can you do that when you have this as your message? So I think <laughs> both challenges, right? Uh, and I think they're the two same challenges that we face today, right? Because, uh, I mean, we know that there are entire ministries devoted to trying to make Christianity perfectly logical and rational. And almost they drive the point, like, why would you not believe these things? I mean, this is so evidently true, right? Apologetics. But I mean, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I mean, no matter what, no matter how much you try to strip away uh, from the message, it's still not gonna be palatable. Culturally speaking, it's not, I don't wanna say it, it's not a pretty message, but yeah, I guess I'm gonna say that it's not a pretty message that we, that we see here. Uh, there's no way to retain your sophistication and still affirm and believe in the gospel, even though people try. I, I, I don't think you can do that successfully. I really don't. <laughs> I, I do believe that you can give reasons why, even if you don't see them on the surface, there's, there's powerful reasons why the gospel makes sense and why what we're and why what we are called to make, set, make sense of life existentially and in other ways. 
but I don't think we can truly get rid of the gospel without almost rewriting the whole thing, honestly. Uh, and secondly, the ethical demand, right? The ethical demand, which is a challenge. We are called to follow Jesus as Lord, which means that we're going to have to uh, do the type of things Jesus says we should do. So I think we're equally challenged as the Corinthians were. And to your point earlier, like people who try to make Christianity cool on Twitter or podcast or YouTube. <laughs> and I think it is possible. <laughs> I, I think it is possible to some extent. I do believe that. I do. But no matter what, it's just going to be weird. It's always going to be weird. Okay. So I think Christianity or the gospel is irredeemably weird and foreign and strange. And you just can't, you can't rebrand it. You can't reimagine it. It's, it's an offensive gospel in, in some ways. And there's nothing we can do about it, honestly, I think, to a large extent. What do you think about that? Okay, yeah, so let's, Let's uh, try to talk about like what is this? Um, the Greek word is kerygma, which is uh, the preaching or the proclamation of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. This chapter is based, or this this passage we're working on right here is is, is telling us like what are the features of the kerygma, properly understood, basically, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the the kerygma is clearly not. A, a body of, of wisdom or a body of doctrine or mm -hmm. a, um, uh, a foundation for culture or it's nothing that will bring us like human wisdom and sophistication and, um, and so on. It's not something that will civilize us or improve us in, this, in the expected ways. Um, mm -hmm. Although it had better bring the fruit of the spirit. So so there's so there's that, and I, I I like to think of it this way. In the New Testament, we can I think it's safe to say pretty much no one is an atheist, and everybody thinks they know what and roughly who God is. Okay, that's just because of the time and place. Like now there's atheists, but back then it was not much less common. So so really the whole issue is who or what is this God? We have um, we have like a Roman answer to that question, probably to do more with the politics of their empire and, and their pantheon. Um, we have a Jewish answer to that question. Mm -hmm. We and actually we have many Jewish answers to that question. Like we've got the Sadducees answer, the Pharisees answer, the Essenes answer, the Qumran community's answer, and then like the everyday working person's answer which is maybe just deferring to someone else's answer. And then we got Jesus's answer. He has an answer to that question. He says that God is such and such and God cares about so-and-so. And, and guess what? There's a conflict about that. So what's really at stake here is who God actually is. And that's why I'm, that's why I'm sort of resisting the Trinitarian theology right up front. Cause if the answer is, Oh, it's just me. Like that's, we're kind of not going to even have this conversation that we're about to have. <laughs> we're having this debate about who God is and Jesus has an opinion. And, and then 
he enacts his opinion of who God is by offering this challenge for Israel to return to their God as described by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then he gets crucified as a result. Um, and then the Christian good news is that God says that Jesus was right all along. So even though crucifixion is supposed to be the ultimate loss of credibility and authority, mm-hmm. because you didn't have the power or the wisdom to avoid what anybody with any power or wisdom would avoid. Turns out that Jesus was right all along. This is the gospel of the, of the good news of, of Jesus Christ, is that God has raised Jesus and exalted him. And what that means is that Jesus was right and everybody else was wrong. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that does not include avoiding crucifixion. That is very disturbing because it's very, it's not very practical for us. <laughs> That's the case. Um, practical means avoiding crucifixion. The actual power and wisdom of God doesn't promise us that we're going to avoid getting crucified. It promises us greater things than that, in fact. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, so maybe that. Let, let me say something else then. Um, I'm sorry that I'm going on here. Okay. So what could possibly be better than avoiding crucifixion? Let's let's ask that question. <laughs> it seems like whatever it is, it better be pretty damn good if we're willing to risk crucifixion for it. (laughs) Mm. What could possibly be better than that? This is what the gospel is offering us. And I think that we wanna, like we want a theology of the cross. I think the Corinthian situation could be described as a theology of triumph kind of taking root. And -hmm. Paul is returning them to a theology of the cross. We Mm -hmm. want a theology of the cross, but we don't want to have a theology of, oh, well, I guess I might get crucified. Like this is a very depressed, theology, if that's all it has to say. (laughs) Paul is animated by something that's so wonderful that he's willing to embrace this, the same wisdom and power that got Jesus Christ crucified. So what is animating Paul? Like, maybe this is what, maybe this is what you could try to answer for us here or, or see what you think. Like, what is it that's so great for Paul that makes this worth it? Uh, Why would anyone take that bargain? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can answer that, to be honest, but I will say a few things. Well, first of all, I love how you talked about the wisdom of God and the power of God in the light of Jesus's earthly history, right? Yes. And then how Paul is, in a way, replicating, really, what Jesus did. I mean, I I, I really think it's fair to say that, that Paul is almost a second Christ, if you will. I mean, he, he says to his congregations, follow me as I follow Christ. So he really felt that God called upon him to embody the teaching, not just to preach this kerygma everywhere, but to really follow the example of Jesus. And so that's what he tried to do. I mean, he, more than any other apostle, he really worked hard and he labored hard and he suffered I'm reminded of Galatians 6, where he says, 
I bear, I bear the marks of belonging to Jesus, talking about like the slave marks, right? And the slave marks being the scars from uh, the punishments that he received in, in his ministry as he faced persecution from uh, opponents. Yeah, so yeah, this is definitely the core, I think, of the letter. And it's very paradoxical. It's very paradoxical how God brings life out of death, how God glorifies Jesus, who was publicly shamed unto death, and how Jesus, someone, someone who was considered uh, to be accursed by the law, ends up being the righteousness and the holiness of God and the way forward for Paul to continue uh, serving God. So there, there's just, a, there's so much here, but I think it's important to, again, go back to the theme of the Corinthians were really enamored of polished speaking of our presence. I think it's in First Corinthians as well. When I think they complain about Paul saying that in person, he's not all that impressive. And that his speech is almost contemptible, but they, they do they do recognize that his letters are his letters are weighty. So again, the Corinthians were really really struggling with presentation. They they, they couldn't really grasp, but that you have to look beyond presentation. I'm sure the Apostle Paul was not much to look at, and he was probably not the most impressive speaker. But, I mean, his life really displayed the power of God. And that's something that he's going to point to later on as evidence that God is at work in his ministry, in his life. And, and here, he, he even turns the tables. He says, you judge me. Well, let me judge you. Look at you. You're not all that impressive. Most <laughs> of you are poor. Uh, you're not particularly wise. Not many of you were born in a high state. Few of you are noble. I mean, look at what God is doing. Who is God working with and through? This should give you a clue as to how the gospel works. It's almost like a mini Galatians. So the book of Galatians is basically saying, did you accept Jewish practices before you received the spirit <laughs> or did you receive the spirit by sort of like listening and believing mm -hmm. and the same thing is saying he's saying that here like were you called because you were wise sophisticated mm -hmm. rich yeah. privileged or what like so it's this is i've i've started to use this phrase like the logic of the gospel mm -hmm. the logic of the gospel is that when i get this kind of from john barkley I mean, it's not his phrase, the logic of the gospel, but the logic of his book sounds like this to me, this idea that the gospel or Jesus Christ and him crucified is a gift given, mm -hmm. and the spirit of Jesus is a gift given without regard for a number of things that humans would use as criteria to decide who deserves the gift. So if the gift is given in a way that crosses those boundaries, we need to ignore those boundaries 
ourselves. So in, in um, not that they don't exist, but that they're not important for who is valued in God's sight. So in Galatians, it's sort of the, it's the boundary is who follows Jewish customs. The gift is given regardless of whether people follow it. And so it's inappropriate, according to the gospel, to mimic the customs of other types of people in order to belong. Mm -hmm. The gift was given beforehand. You need to understand what that means. And so in this, yeah, in, in, in Corinthians, in Corinth, the gift was given before before all these people improved themselves, I guess. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so they, they can't put the same weight on it that they are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on to the rest? Yeah. All right. I'll read uh, chapter two, verse six through the end. Now we do speak wisdom among the mature but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, but just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagine are the things God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed these to us by the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the man's spirit within him? So too, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about these things, not with words taught us by human wisdom, but with those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, well, first first thing I want to say is um, this first three verses at least uh, basically are classic verses for the for the approach to the atonement where Christ defeats the powers and even aside from that they're very important to me and, and what we're talking about here um, essentially Paul talks here about the rulers of this age or the wisdom of this age and he says that they're perishing so what are the rulers and the wisdom of this age? Well, surely it's the actual human authorities who, um, who, were, who were responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's not, I don't think it's just that. I think he's, he's referring to the spiritual powers behind mm -hmm. these authorities, um, the spiritual powers behind the state to which he, which, in which he lives. Uh, 
I, I just think in the mind of Paul, as sort of an apocalyptic thinker, he looks at he looks at at nations and kingdoms and and he imagines like spiritual powers and battles between different regional mm -hmm. angelic authorities and yeah in any case like that's what he's thinking but at a very practical level like it's not very hard for us to build something that takes a life of its own uh just imagine like the stock market for instance the stock market is basically a very complicated mathematical mathematical equation that no one person actually controls right it's like we breathe life into this thing and now it is alive and it affects us. It's a power <laughs> that's at work in our world. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have to be, you can still be a naturalist and recognize that this is the case. Um, so collectively we construct all sorts of powers and no one of us necessarily controls them. There's, a, there's these systems that we've constructed or that we've inherited. And the best we can do sometimes is just to tweak them a little bit. But I think that these all fall under this idea of the wisdom of the age and the rulers of this age who are perishing. And uh, guess what? The logic of most of these powers, spiritual or constructed or whatever, is that getting crucified is for losers. And But the gospel says that Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, which is the opposite of being a loser. <laughs> but he did lose by the standard of these powers. So what does that mean for those powers? It means that they are up against God mm -hmm. and therefore they're slated for destruction. Yeah. I think it's really interesting how Paul says, if they had known it, meaning God's hidden plan and mystery, they would not have they would not have crucified the Lord with glory. So Absolutely, in Paul's yeah. mind, picture this. Imagine that the demons and the angels and the principalities and archons, I mean, whatever else is going on. Imagine that they actually knew what would happen if Jesus was crucified. Paul says that if that were the case, they would make sure he didn't get crucified. Why is that? I think that it's because everybody thinks that they are pleasing god <laughs> that's my kind of approach to this is that everybody thinks that god wants jesus put out of the way otherwise he's going to ruin our like our temple worship or he's going to ruin our our caesar worship or he's going to ruin our plans for israel's restoration or whatever everybody thinks they're on god's side including the powers the powers say we have been instituted by God. Literally, this is what most monarchies in the world will say. Like, we have a divine right to the throne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the powers think that they've been put there by God. This is always the case. Even if they believe that a theology of might makes right. That God is with the strong. And so when it turns out that God is actually with the weak, this means that the powers are slated for destruction. Because in the end, God gets what God wants. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ is that all of the calculus of the powers, the might makes right calculations and the systematic, um, yeah, the, and the systems uh, that, that operate under the assumption that crucifixion is to be avoided at all costs, even if that means disobeying the spirit of God, it's all, it's all wrong. It's all slated for destruction. 
Um, and this is why I say it's about the will, not about the folly. Uh, it's not that it was intellectually too complicated. I think humans do this all the time. I think Christians and, and thinkers do this all the time. They say, oh, God's ways are higher than our ways, meaning that they're so complicated that we can't understand them. That's not what it is. They're so challenging that we can't will to see them. It's not that they're so complicated. It's that, that we just can't bear to see it uh, without, without a surrender of our will. And I think this is the same with the powers. The powers can't bear to see it without a surrender of their will. Just think of any political issue where, where there's something that makes a lot of sense that would, that would be for the common good, but it just can't be done. It's not complicated. It's not that it's not understood. It's that we can't will to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sort of defines the gospel more or less. He says, now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you and that you received and on which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I passed on to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he, he moves on. But that's what Paul says the gospel is. So when I read that, I think about, okay, so according to Paul and the earlier tradition that he inherited, the earlier gospel tradition that he inherited, right, when he... Uh, joined the Jesus movement, I guess. They interpreted Jesus's death as a death that brought about atonement, right? So Jesus died for our sins. We have a whole episode on that or two. Please go back and check them out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what I think about. The, you hear nowadays people say, well, you know, it's not true. Jesus wasn't born just so that he would die. Have you ever heard of that? People say, Jesus wasn't born just so he would die. And I think that is true. But at the same time, when I read the Gospel of John or when I read Paul's theology, I mean, they make, they make such a big deal of the death of Jesus that it very much seems like, like his death was the whole point, right? Especially with Paul, who who doesn't really bother to tell stories or parables or many events of Jesus' life. It's just, he died for sins and he was raised on the third day. And this is really powerful. This has changed everything. Let me tell you what that means. Um, okay, let me, let me say something about that. The, yeah. In terms of the past. So I think that the when you hear somebody on Twitter say, like, Jesus didn't just come to die. Mm -hmm. What they're really trying to do is um, is push back on the penal substitutionary atonement approach, mm -hmm. which I think, which I think is just almost morally um, incomprehensible anyway. So, so I mean, I'm with them on that. But um, I I kind of I think of it this way in t in light of the in light of uh, what we're talking about here with the powers and the the rulers of this age, they didn't understand it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of the glory. Um, the death of Jesus was. And it was basically a very, very predictable outcome of God making known God's character and purposes and wisdom and attitude towards human power in the presence of the powers. It's like a Tiananmen Square, a theological Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. If you stand up in front of a column of Chinese mm -hmm. tanks 
mm-hmm. and a protest. Mm-hmm. What do yeah. you think will happen? And um, actually, this is actually a pretty decent analogy for the atonement. Um, I think the, the purpose was not to be destroyed. The purpose was to present the character of God, the, the very predictable outcome is that the powers would interpret God's actual character as weakness and try to snuff it out and try to snuff out any manifestation of it because the powers exist under certain assumptions and they want to silence whatever is testimony against um, their basis for existence. Yeah. And that's what happened. Now, there may be, there's probably more to it than that, but I think in terms of this Christ defeating the powers aspect of the atonement, I think this is, this is what we have here. Yeah. Paul says that among the mature, he says, we do speak of wisdom. So I think it's important here to just remind ourselves that he's talking about how faith how faith looks at the cross, how faith looks at the works of God. Faith looks at these events and faith sees the wisdom and the power of God. Paul is not saying that people are going to see this. He says, if you believe, and if you're mature in the faith, Paul claims, then you're going to see some kind of spiritual logic at work here is not going to be illogical it's going to make sense actually it's going to make some kind of sense how god works and how he goes about uh working in the world right yes exactly the um so that's the last half of this section we're talking about the spirit of god and the, and the spirit knowing the mind of god and us having the mind of christ do you have any thoughts about that part no. uh not really no <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, to me, the verses around the crucified Messiah, that's, that's where my mind goes to this. I don't really have any, any issues with it or anything. Uh, I guess it's not very shocking com- compared to the previous section. So yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. This is tremendous. And I think uh, there are many theologians, mystics, saints who have written many books in the last 2000 years that explain the work of God, the gospel in beautiful, amazing ways that you read them and you're like, wow, yeah, this is beautiful. This makes sense. This actually makes sense. Uh, but, you know, again, going back to the Corinthians, this, this was not making a whole lot of sense. With them. Yeah. I, I think that this last little bit is very much about experiential theology and what, what you were saying is that this gospel actually will kind of make sense to you um, if you have an experience of it and uh, and I, I think this is why it's so important to keep going back to the death of Christ and Christ crucified as we're kind of exhorted to in this in first Corinthians because because uh, it's very easy to miss the point of the whole thing if you don't continually re refresh yourself and reorient yourself around the wisdom of god and the power of god sort of made manifest in christ crucified it's so easy to go off the rails and i and i do fear sometimes that atonement theology can have the effect 
of essentially um, hanging some curtains around the cross so that we don't actually have to look at the revelation of God in Christ crucified because we think we've understood it. And I'm pointing to penal substitutionary atonement, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think it blinds us to the moral value and the revelation of the character of God. And in fact, it presents an alternate God with an alternate character, arguably. Uh, and, um, and so, and so it's so, I think it's important to, to have strong opinions about these things because we're talking, we're trying to decide which Lord we are in fact calling upon <laughs> and who is our common Lord in the first place. Um, yes. Yeah. The one with universal love for all people, the one who defeats the powers or the one that, or the one that wills to just sort of get even with us. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's a big difference. So yeah, I mean, Christ crucified and risen is the grammar of Christian theology. It's the foundation, but it's something that you never move beyond. You always have to go back and revisit from different angles, from different experiences. And I think it's been helpful spending some time on these two chapters. Any any last word here on what we have read? No, I think that was really fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will meet again. Uh, read First Corinthians. Follow the Apostle Paul. All right. Thank you. <laughs>